up to 70% off. That's right, at Court Furniture Clearance Center. Get up to 70% off new retail prices and choose from a wide variety of previously leased furniture and decor for your home or office. Sofas from $199.99, bedroom sets from $399.99, dining sets from $299.99, and more. All items are court certified, guaranteed, and in stock, ready for delivery or to take home today. Make the smart choice and visit one of our five locations in the DMV or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Mention Radio 20 and get 20% off. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons and Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Uh, happy uh, catching up on two really new sold weeks uh, off of the podcast week, I guess. And baseball. Happy baseball. Yeah. Happy baseball. Happy Mets. Uh, I guess, since this is your excuse. Well, everyone will get over it. As, as folks know, Dan and I will talk about the Mets periodically here. We spare you all summer, however, which I feel like is something that should be commended, and then we wait until like September to spring it back on you. Yes, right when when actual Syracuse sports start. <laughs> pay, pay no attention to the the orange team in, in front of us. We're we're too busy caring about the orange team behind us. Um, so Dan, as you mentioned, a lot of things have happened since our uh, our first in person podcast that we had uh, several weeks back in Brooklyn. Um, where shall we start? Uh, maybe Mike Hopkins? I guess that's probably the leading the leading bit of news. Was that really the last podcast we did? That feels yeah. like so long ago. Well, I was on vacation, <laughs> and then you were sick. Yep. Alas. So many things have happened. <laughs> <laughs> it's the fun of covering Syracuse, is that there's literally never a dull moment. I, I see other blogs that write, like, a story a day, and um, I, I just, How? I, I I cover a team that that doesn't, in any way, shape, or form, let you rest or take a breather. Um, so I, I'm just kind of used to the, the the grind that is this orange sports at this point. Yeah, it is uh, definitely a program that that runs itself to lots of of chatter and discussion, and uh, especially because you know it is also a cross season. So now we get to talk about how this team. Aside from tonight, only wins one gold games, but uh, tends to win all of them, so that's fun, too. Well, admittedly, the Hobart series, and I mean, it's continued for, like, traditional and historic reasons, but Hobart's not the type of school that, like, can really compete with the, just the talent level we have. No, I feel like every couple of years, though, that when we go out there, they get, like, super salty and... And their goalie stands on his head. That I didn't see any game tonight because it wasn't available here. But that doesn't seem like it happened. Is it we scored seventeen goals? Um, but like every so often, Hobart like does one of those has one of those games where they're just super frustrating, and Syracuse pulls out like a one or two goal win. So it was nice. Uh, and I feel like every other every time that happens, it's also like downpour, rain, and the field's a mess. Um, I don't know how the conditions were tonight, but uh, I'm glad to have seen a not another one goal win. Which I think we had five in a row going into this game, four or five in a row, and uh, yeah, uh, actually imposed our will a little bit, not to immediately go, we said we were going to talk about Mike Hopkins, and then immediately started talking about everything else. <laughs> well, admittedly, as I mentioned during the basketball season, you know, playing that many close games and that many, like, you know, fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants contests does ha- take its toll, and, and, you know, I wasn't in the locker room, I'm not in these players' heads um, for the Syracuse basketball team, so I don't know how much of a toll you know, that stretch of games where we really were down to the wire for five or six straight. I don't know the, 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 the physical and mental toll that, that took on them, but I wouldn't doubt it if, if it had at least a little bit of an impact by the end of the season. Yeah, I mean, it's it just that, that level of stress. Like, there's something to be said for playing a game where you're not, like, tearing your, tearing your sleeves off your shirt down with, you know, a minute left every single game. Like, I think I think just having some some easy easy ones uh, here and there, uh, sp- uh, spiced without uh, throughout, definitely helps a little bit, especially in, in, in lacrosse when we have you know the ACC grind coming up. Agree completely. Um, and now we pivot back to the topic we were talking about, Mike Hopkins. Um, Dan, you and I discussed here a little bit um, on Slack um, and on Twitter, things like that, but. How do you feel about it now that we're a couple weeks removed? Are you happy about it? Do you think we're going to see him again on the Syracuse sideline? What's your uh, what's your kind of you know quick take on on the news? Um, I'm happy for him, um, regardless of whether or not I'm happy 
about him leaving Syracuse considering the plan that was in place. Um, I'm happy for Hop because it seems like, you know, he won't, however you feel like this went down and there's, you know, a million theories and whatnot. Um, I'm happy that he's getting his shot and he's getting a, a pretty good one. Like he, he's in a, a place that has recruited well recently. Um, is not going to have crazy, crazy, uh, expectations, but it's also, you know, kind of, uh, back to his roots. Obviously he's a California guy, not a Washington guy, but he's back at West. Um, I just, you know, I'm happy he got his opportunity at a pretty big-time school, uh, considering some of the other offers he's had throughout the years, like Charlotte, and, you know, also runs like Boston College. Um, <laughs> Washington's a pretty decent opportunity. Uh, I think if you were to ask me today, and I think I said this two weeks ago, um, if you had, like, odds on who was going to replace Jim Beheim, I think you'd still have to put Mike Hopkins in the number one slot. I don't know you know, what's going through his head, and I don't know how much longer Bayham will coach if it's, like, four years. That's a pretty good uh, term for Hopkins at Washington. Um, so you'll kind of know what he is there as a head coach. Like, he'll, he'll hopefully have made a tournament by that point. If he's going to be a successful coach, he'll, he'll have uh, a full cycle of recruiting through. Um, so you'll have a pretty good idea of what he is. Um, and in that, you know, if he's been out there for that long, and, and you know, either maybe he falls in love with it out there, and turns Washington some kind of Pac-12 power contender, at least. But, you know, I think if Syracuse was a Tim Calling with a, with a sizable offer to replace Bayheim and, and finally take over the program that he was promised way back in, what, 07, I think was the first time that he was, like, unofficially, officially announced as the, uh, as the interim, or not the interim, the uh, heir apparent. That sounds um, Yeah, I mean, that's 10 years, basically. That's a lot to turn down, um, even after he, you know, let's say he does three or four years at Washington. Um, now, on the other side, you know, it, it does give you, it, it, it has some, some immediate repercussions because it, it really muddies the waters as to what Syracuse does now without him because he's been such a, a focal point in recruiting and he, you know, we've all heard he like runs the day-to-day -day operations for the most part while Bayheim's kind of like the more, you know, big picture guy and then the, the sideline strategist. Um, I think getting to see what Hopkins can do for four years as a head coach, if you still want him as the next Syracuse coach, which I, th I think is in play. Um, you know, people were saying back when he had some of these other offers, you know, let's let Hop go and see what he can be. Um, so now that's an opportunity. Uh, but obviously the chance that he ends up being the next coach is, is greatly diminished that, from where it was, where, you know, I think if Bayheim was to have, you know, had he retired after the season, I don't think Hop would have still taken this opportunity, obviously. I think that he'd be fine staying in Syracuse. So, um, I'm, I'm a, you know, a little nervous about the future of the program. Um, I think some of the stuff that's happened since in terms of, like, Beheim being more active on recruiting has made me a little more optimistic, um, especially with, like, going after Jordan Tucker and, and maybe locking him down uh, after kind of falling off out of his recruitment for a bit and, and really seeing what, what Jerry McNamara can be as a more uh, active assistant on the recruiting trail. Um it's it's one of those things where like you're you're nervous, but at the same time, like it, it adds a lot of intrigue to a program where we kind of knew what we were getting year in and year out. And um, you you know some would argue that things had grown a little stale. I don't know if that's necessarily the case, but it definitely uh, throws a wrench into things. And and you know it, it may who knows we we don't know maybe this will will shake Bayheim into you know getting out of his comfort zone a little bit and and trying new things down the stretch here to try to reinvigorate a program where. You know, we've had the Final Four run, but then we've also had, um, you know, three pretty uh, down regular seasons um, that don't really negate it, but uh, are definitely fall short of the standard that was set from that, you know, 2009 to 2014 run that we had, where we were one of the best teams in the country every year. Yeah, I think those are all great points. I think, you know, stagnancy and, and complacency are definitely dangers, um, especially when you're a guy like Jim, who's pretty set in his ways. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, he, he's not incapable of change. I mean, you just look at last year's Final Four run um, and, and, you know, bringing on the press, things like that. Like, those were adjustments that he made, and they, those weren't, uh, you know, flukes by any means. Those were changes that, that, were, that were researched and, and all that. Um, but at the same time, you know, in, I, and I apply this to the Midwest, much of the Northeast, in a part of the country that can get complacent with success, and that goes for not just sports, but anything, you know, you, you don't really want to change. Um, you're not really striving to shake things up if you don't necessarily have to. Obviously, no one's going to push Jim at this point to shake anything up if he doesn't want to. 
Um, but at the same time, I think this does kind of, you know, get him a little bit, a little bit more motivated um, because, you know, he is an alum. He does really care about the, the school and the team and, and his legacy. Um, so I, I think that, that all of that, you know, might spur kind of a, a, a lasting few-year run um, from Bayheim, And hopefully that means, you know, some more tournament success and potentially another Final Four or even a national championship for him to go out on. Um, I agree with you. I think Hopkins is still the guy um, that comes in. I, I think that, you know, it, it's not as if, I don't think Washington, like Washington's an easier job at, at the baseline, if only because the standard for success is lower. Um, but at the same time, I think that the hurdles to jump over are just as high. I think you look at uh, UCLA and Arizona, um, and their kind of perennial stranglehold on that conference. You can add Oregon to that list as well. Um, and then, you know, a rising USC program under Andy Enfield, I doubt Andy's going anywhere. Um, and USC seems willing to pay him uh, to get that program back on course, um, or at least on, co- on a course they ha- they've rarely been at. So um, if you look at things that way, I, I think that just like in the ACC, he'd kind of be blocked out of that top three or four um, year in and year out. Um, while Hopkins is definitely a, someone who had national connections recruiting-wise, um, Washington is a state school. A lot of their roster is Washington-based. Uh, I'm looking at it right now, actually, and I think about almost half the players are from Washington. I got one guy from California over in Palmdale, um, and then we got a couple international guys, Illinois, Maryland, Georgia. Um, he's still going to have to develop uh, you know, recruiting abilities in that part of the country. And you know, he, he brought in, or he was trying to bring in Jason Hart, uh, he was formerly from Syracuse, but he's been on the USC staff for the last few years. He was trying to bring in Hart, I think, specifically for that reason, to help recruit down here in Southern California. Um, that didn't happen, so now I think he's kind of back to square one in terms of you know, how he's going to mine his California connections um, without him himself having to be on the road all the time. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm very curious to see what he does at Washington. I think he's going to do well. I still think the detractors for him are going to be the detractors. I think the believers are going to be the believers. Um, but if Hopkins can get Washington into the NCAA tournament by year three um, and then potentially back by year four, the buyout will be lower. Um, and, and I think Syracuse fans will be ready to welcome him back if Jim is indeed done at that point. I think that's about right. And um, I actually, I mean, I, I think he is a, a really interesting fit out there because he, he definitely seems to uh, fit the vibe of like, the West Coast, you know, even Pacific Northwest, like it, it, se- like, it seems like a cultural fit for him, which is good. Like, it would have, I, I, I never really thought it made a lot of sense for him to go take a job like Charlotte, or, or even BC, where he'd have to face Bayheim twice a year, and then, you know, that's such a tough job right now, but Washington, where he can kind of be out in his own, um, you know, developing his own recruiting trails, uh, you know, legitimately blazing his own trail out there, uh, versus trying to to slug it out in a lower level ACC school, or, or you know, do the grind of, of like a, you know, the other, all the other schools that have offered him recently, like St. Bonaventure, um, I think it was like one of the first ones back after the national championship. Um, that's uh, I mean, it's so tough to claw off the rankings, uh, the, um, you know, ranks of, of uh, the tiers of coaches from those places because there's such you know there's always so much working against you. Um, well, and Washington's all those jobs a, kind of seem cyclical, too. I feel like all those jobs really do kind of trickle down where the top assistants at the Northeast schools, because you're at the end of the day, if you're in Northeast school, and this goes back to the old Big East days, you, you are kind of recruiting the same places, the same kids, the same schools. You look at the list for most of the top kids today, and it's us, it's UConn, it's Villanova, um, a couple of other Northeast schools. Like, at the end of the day, you're going to be facing all the same people you know, you're going to be, again, if you went to BC, you're going to face Syracuse twice a year. You're never going to escape Bayheim's shadow. At least now he can, you know, kind of, and from a professional standpoint, I totally get it. You know, you get to be your own man. You get to exist outside of, of, of somebody else's, um, you know, not just influence, but, but just the, the specter of them, uh, even when they're gone. Yeah, I'm super interested to see Washington play um, if only because I want to see what he does with the defense because I, I know he's he's talked about the zone a little bit. Um, just having read like his introductory stuff and the first couple interviews with him uh, since he took the Washington job, I'm really interested to see how much zone. I'm just going to play a little bit this year, but it doesn't sound like 
he's going to like force it upon the program um, right away, and it wouldn't make sense to because they, they probably don't have the right uh, players for it. But um, I'm really interested to see in like year three or four of Hopkins what the defensive balance is because I, I imagine he will play the zone a little bit, but uh, I think he'll definitely be a little more uh, diverse in terms of what defenses he runs, and I really want to see what that breakdown is like. Yeah, I, I completely agree there. I think you know, I'm looking at the roster right now. This is definitely not a roster that's tailored for the zone. Uh, they're smaller. They've only got like one true big man. Um, he's a freshman from New Zealand. Like, th- there's definitely. I mean, Hopkins has said repeatedly that he's not as tethered to the zone. I think, you know, you'll probably see him use it to the same extent that a lot of other ACC teams use it. Um, you know, you use it when you want to press a little bit. You use it when you want to, you know, spark a rally. Uh, I mean, I, I think North Carolina did a little bit of that against Gonzaga in the national championship game. Um, so I, I think you'll see him use it that way. But um, I, I don't see I don't, I don't see him forcing it upon them the way that like Miami did when Larry Nega first got there and he brought in Bernie Fine um, to kind of quickly curtail some growing pains with a bunch of JUCOs and, and other transfers. And, and Miami had a much bigger roster. Like, it made a lot more sense for them. Um, yeah, it was interesting. Uh, more based on, like, the, the Patrick Ewing stuff, um, I was actually looking through yesterday, uh, and I went through... This was a stupid project. I went through the Wikipedia of every uh, current... F, uh, not FBS, D1 basketball head coach. And uh, did you guess, out of the, what, 351 programs, how many are coached by, their, uh, by a uh, person who graduated from there? So how many... Coaches are coaching at their alma mater right now. Hmm. I'm gonna guess it's more than one. It's more than one. Um, I know that Princeton's coach is a Princeton grad. Yes. Um, that's only because I wrote an article about Princeton like a month ago. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna guess the vast majority are smaller schools. I'm gonna guess the number is 11. No, it's more. It's it's 34. Oh wow! So it's about 10 percent. Um, but the only big ones, like the only really notable ones, are Mick Cronin at Cincy, uh, Kevin Ollie, um, debatably Anthony Grant. I wouldn't say that's a big one at Dayton, but he's new there, and he's you know been a, a power conference head coach. Obviously, Ewing now, uh, Roy Williams at UNC, um, Matt Painter at Purdue, Chris Mullen at St. John's, Bayheim, Jamie Dixon at TCU, Bob Huggins at West Virginia, and Chris Mack at Xavier. So 34. And then at the same time, I looked uh, at football, which is, what, 120, how many are we up to now, 128, 127? Uh, it's 130 this year, and then it's dropping. Is it 130 it's, now? It's 130, so, and then it's dropping for, a, no, it's actually not dropping now, because Liberty is replacing Idaho. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, that's actually a higher percentage. That is 22 of the 130, um, and a much higher percentage of actually notable people, too. So, that's kind of apropos of nothing, but uh, I thought that was interesting. That is interesting. So it does tell you if, if you know, if Syracuse, if Beheim does retire and, and Pop doesn't leave and assuming, you know, Adrian Autry isn't the Nets head coach or, and I want to slap everyone who suggested this after Hopkins left, Jerry McNamara is the Nets head coach. Um, we will be in the vast majority of programs, especially power five to, you know, I guess six and a half, seven pro, uh, conferences uh, that are not coached by an alumnus. Interesting. That is, uh, yeah, I, and we've talked about this before for football and basketball um, and lacrosse to an extent. Um, SU fans kind of have this weird thing with change because of Bayheim, and, like, just can't, can't conceive that anyone that doesn't know, quote-unquote, us, like, is going to be able to do the job well. Um, that's always confusing to me. And you know what, like if Dino Babers does what I think he's going to be able to do, um, I think that that should probably like shoot that concept right out of the water. Um, and again, like if Scott Schaefer had like succeeded, he would have shot that concept right out of the water too, despite the fact that he was on campus for several years. So I don't think you need to be, I don't think you need to be part of the culture and, and all that to get it at the same time. Like, Syracuse is a quirky enough place where it might help at least a little bit. I mean, you look at, I think, what Wild Hack's been able to do as AD. Um, I don't think you're able to pull that off, um, just the moves he's made and, and the changes that, he, that have undergone behind the scenes. 
I don't think you're able to do those things without kind of knowing the nuances of the place already and, and the fan base and, and their reactions to things. It's a definite plus when you can hire an alum, you know, if it's also the best right. like, don't hire force you can it. make. Like, I think it's like it's another notch on the resume, but it shouldn't over, you know, it doesn't supersede, like, actual coaching ability. Right, and that that's going to be the interesting thing with Ewing. I think Ewing has some great coaching ability, but I don't necessarily know if he has great college coaching ability. Uh, and that's going to be the yeah, test you, for him. He doesn't, ha- he doesn't have any recruiting experience, so now he's going to have to surround himself with people that do. Yeah, I mean, it's for him, it's all about what kind of staff he hires. And I'd be cautiously optimistic if I was a Georgetown fan because of the reports that they were offering, like, Chris Mack $4 million, which would have made him the sixth highest paid head coach in the country. And it's kind of shocking that he turned that down because that's, like, He's making like 1.4, I think, at Xavier. Um, I'm assuming they're not paying Patrick Ewing $4 million, so I would assume that they will pony up for uh, a staff. And if he can surround himself with uh, a really nice staff full of recruiters and, and you know, guy, I mean, he, he, he's been coaching for a while now. So it's not, people are comparing this to Chris Mullen. Chris Mullen hadn't been coaching at all. He had, right. I don't think he had coached at any level. Um, and it shows if you watch St. John's. I mean, they got better this year, but it, it, the first year, like aside from when they played us, they were a total mess. Um, Ewing's been coaching pretty consistently since he retired, so I think the coaching acumen, you know, if he's going to be a good coach, like you know, he has plenty of the requisite bench experience. But recruiting is something that's going to be totally foreign to him. Um, so I, his staff is going to be a, a huge issue now. If Georgetown's going to pony up the same money to surround Ewing with good coaches as they were to try to bring in a Chris Mack or what it would have cost to bring in a Shaka Smart or Mike Bray, who they both, uh, apparently they reached out to both of those guys, and those were, I, I never for a second thought that would actually happen. Um, then, if I'm a Georgetown fan, I'm, I'm actually like kind of optimistic about how uh, the program is treating this, because it sounds like they're actually pretty serious, aside from the fact that, you know, they, they're taking a, a pretty big gamble. Like, it's a, it's a legitimate gamble to hire Ewing, but it's not anywhere as crazy as Mullen was, and the, the jury is still way out on that, so uh, I guess, uh, you know, this is weir- a weirdly, like, cautiously optimistic Syracuse take on the Patrick Ewing hire at Georgetown. That's the thing that we're doing. I mean, it, it's totally fair. You know, Ewing was, like, steps away from the head coaching gig at several different NBA jobs. Um, I, I think what Ewing does that that others wouldn't necessarily be able to do is sell people on Georgetown's history. And I think that that's something that I'm not a kid in high school, so I don't really know how much standing that has anymore. Um, but I think we're going to be able to see that kind of put to the test for Syracuse too. Now without um, Hopkins, is how can Bayheim sell people on, um, you know, the, the the present and future, not the past? I mean, obviously SU has uh, recent success, Final Fours uh, to bank on, and things like that. But that Georgetown does not. Uh, but at the same time when you're hearing a sales pitch to come to play for Syracuse and from Jim Beheim, it's definitely going to be a very different pitch from the one you heard from Mike Hopkins or the one you're probably going to end up hearing more from, you know, your Adrian Autry's um, and, and Jerry McNamara's of the world. And the other thing it does is it bridges the gap between, uh, well, for Georgetown, it bridges like, the whole, uh, you know, stare, Big John is very starey gap where, you know, they just fired his son. This is probably the one hire they could make uh, to appease him. And at the same time, you know, if Patrick Ewing falls in his face, like, John Thompson the second can't say anything anymore because he's had three straight guys, like, that are legitimately his guys after him. So yeah. I think this is like uh, either, you know, it works out and then they're, they're thrilled because it's a high upside move or it doesn't work out and then they're kind of out from under, like, big John's, not totally, as long as he's alive, he's going to have some influence, but you can't be John Thompson Jr. and have you know, your heir apparent fail miserably and your son do all right, like pretty well for a while and then totally fall apart. And then your best player ever, who was like your last bullet in the chamber, also fail and then still like demand, you know, who knows how it actually played out this time. But, you know, it sounds like he probably had a lot of influence in this hire after they, you know, got shot down by the, the big names they went after. So, um, I, I'm super interested to see how it does. I hope he fails miserably, and I hope we beat them by 50. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Although, no, I, I hope that they do well enough <laughs> to hope they do well enough to get laughed at in the tournament, 
every year and still lose to us because if we're going to play them every year, I, I don't want another body bag game on the schedule. I want to play them every year. That's actually not a bad point. I don't. I, I will never root for Georgetown in a game. I hope they lose every time I they play. But aside from that, um, it's not the worst thing if they're like pulling in like three and four seeds, but they lose to us every year, and then also lose the first round every year like that. I almost think like the Florida <laughs> Gulf Coast game, like the fact that they were a two seed, and I know some of that was them. them uh, they, they beat us that year pretty badly, right? Twice. Uh, yeah. Um, and then we beat them in the Big East tournament. Yeah. Um, the Florida Gulf Coast game was so delicious, and it would not have been nearly so if uh, that wasn't a 215. So, like, if that happens more, it almost makes Georgetown being pretty good in the regular season worth it. Um, I can't, like, bring myself to actually root for Georgetown to be good in the regular season, but I can accept it if it gives us more of those moments. Because, <laughs> legitimately, outside of, like, Syracuse making the Final Four the two times, I think my, like, my third favorite NCAA tournament moment of the last uh, however many years... Uh, was probably Georgetown losing to Florida Gulf Coast. <laughs> Same. That, uh, I, remember, I remember that season the, uh, when we had the SOB Awards afterward. And, and then we went to the Final Four, so it was even better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure that season we went to the Final Four and cut down the nets at the Verizon Center. Um, yep, I, I, I was remember, there. Great. I remember at the SOB Awards after that season, and I'm pretty sure best moment ended up going to Florida Gulf Coast anyway, like by a landslide <laughs> vote, because like, the comment section for that game was just – Lawless. Like I wasn't, I wasn't there until the second half. I watched. No, actually, no. I wasn't there until afterwards. I watched because it was on obviously three hours earlier here. Um, I watched the game. My wife and I are actually both at the gym, and the game was on. And like the two of us are like losing our fucking minds, like laughing our asses off while while Georgetown. Like nobody else in the place has like any Georgetown ties. Like it's a gym in L.A. Like nobody has any Georgetown ties. Like. I mean, people, like, are rooting for their bracket or whatever, but, like, the two of us are just, like, sitting there, like, laughing maniacally, like, at the gym while, while Georgetown, like, completely shits the bed against Florida Gulf Coast. And I, admittedly, yeah, that's probably one of my favorite moments as a Syracuse fan as well, somehow. Yeah, the night before we beat Cal, uh, or no, the night before we beat Montana, it must have been um, the game that Seth Davis thought we were going to lose. Uh, and we beat them by, like, 70 points. And that was fun. Like, I enjoyed that. That was really fun. I was watching that at the bar with every, with all the other Syracuse fans here in the city. And then the next day, I vividly remember being at a friend's house on Long Island to watch the games all day. And we were so much more excited about Georgetown losing to Dolph Trost. Like, especially because it was, like, such a ridiculously frenetic game. With like That was, like, the dunk city, the dunk cityest dunk city game by far. Like, they were throwing the most absurd alley-oops all game long. It was so much fun to watch that happen. And, like, we beat Montana by, like, 73 points or something. So, like, that was great. Like... That was an all-time, like, historic tournament blowout, and it didn't even scrape the surface of how much fun Georgetown losing the next day was. So yeah. we will always have Gulf Coast, no matter what happens, and hopefully Patrick Ewing can, can continue that fine legacy. It's a tradition unlike any other. <laughs> now they just have to get back to the tournament, because the last two years they haven't even come all that close. <laughs> all I have right. to update my, uh, my Twitter avatar from when I had uh, all the teams that had beaten them recently. Shout out to Davidson, Ohio. Uh, Utah, um, VCU, uh, obviously Gulf Coast. I think that was all of them I had on there. That makes sense. I feel like that was the list. Um, all right, before we get to halftime, one more thing. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I put together a list of potential replacements that weren't Hopkins for Jim Beheim. Um, I'm going to read you those names, and then you tell me which of those you'd be all right with and which of those that you would not be all right with in any way, shape, or form. Okay. Uh, Dan Hurley from Rhode Island. I'd be probably okay with it. He is 44 right now, age-wise, which is a great hire from a like longevity standpoint. Yep, but he's had, he's, I mean, he's had some pretty good teams there. Um, he's a name. I don't know how much that matters, but he's from the Northeast, which I don't know how much that matters, but... But not bad things. New Jersey guy. Jersey guy. Um, shout out to St. Anthony's, which is going under apparently, which is crazy. Um, yeah, I mean, Bayheim will probably appreciate uh, the, you know, Kay's approval of the Hurley family. Indeed. Uh, that was kind of a theme of, of my picks here. Um, John Becker, Vermont. 
I know he's good. I think he's probably not big enough now. I would almost like to see him get another job first. That's fair. That's I, fair. I'm not. I'm not out on him. Like I know he's a good coach, um, but like Vermont Syracuse is a big jump. No, I, I thought that when I was when I like that was the one in there where I was like, eh, that like that was one of the first things that came to mind. Um, Tommy Amaker, Harvard. I like Tommy Amaker. He's done an awesome job at Harvard. He's a re- like they're they're like weird. They they put him like a top twenty class last year, um, which obviously part of that is they're doing like kind of the stand for football thing where hey, if you're a five star recruit, come play for Harvard because like why not? Um, it's a little different than Stanford because they can actually compete for a, a title. But his last foray into he was at Michigan, right? And yeah, it was not good. Didn't, it did not go well. It scares me. It scares me a little bit. Um, I wouldn't be all the way out on it, but that scares me. I buy it. Um, Chris Collins, Northwestern. Um, Luke Warren. He's got the Coach K tie. It took Coach him a K few tie. years to do something at Northwestern, but he did do something at Northwestern. Yeah, I, I think he's maybe not as high ceiling as I want. He's obviously he can coach a bit. Um, getting Northwest of the tournament, as we've heard from every person <laughs> every, that isn't a Syracuse alum in, in media. Yes, and like the five Mizzou alums out there too. Um, I, I don't love it. I don't know. He just it's he strikes me as like a guy who. You know, bringing Northwest to the tournament every couple of years, and he'll be like, he almost strikes me like the, the Pat Fitz, He could be the Pat Fitzgerald of, of basketball, which is appropriate for where he is. Um, but like, I don't know, he just doesn't strike me as a high ceiling enough guy. All right, and then uh, Wojo over at Marquette. I'm a little higher on Wojo. I like the way Marquette plays. Obviously, he's only been there for what two years, yeah. um, but there he was recruited pretty well. Um, I'd be a little afraid of him jumping because, like, who, when's K going to retire? I feel like K doesn't have any, like, there are, like, no retirement whispers about him, and he's just as old as Bayheim is. I feel like, A, a he looks younger. I don't know if he dyes his hair or whatever. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all the hair. Yeah, it's definitely Bayheim just wore a, a wig, it, we wouldn't have any issues. But, like, K's also, like, less aggravated on a daily basis than Bayheim is. And also the NCAA just absolutely refuses to ever sniff around the new program. Yeah. Cough, 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 cough. Uh, Whatever the dude that was selling jewelry or Literally. buying jewelry, yeah, they, they, um, they couldn't care less over there. I also think that there, I also think that there's a. It's weird because I feel like Duke is not on such a higher plane than Syracuse, where where that job should be that much more desirable. That said, I feel like there isn't a coach in America other than Roy Williams who wouldn't at least listen to the phone call from Duke. And I don't feel like that's the case for Syracuse. Uh, yeah, I was actually, I wrote about this the other day um, in terms of, like, the, the best jobs in college basketball. I think you put Duke, uh, Duke's still one of the hardest ones to judge because you have an issue with, like, Syracuse and uh, kind of, like, to a lesser extent, like, Michigan State and a couple others where they have, like, these legendary coaches um, where you, you just don't know what they're going to be after that coach leaves. Obviously, Michigan State's had two coaches in a row now. Izzo was uh, directly off of the, the Heath Tote um, tree. Uh, Duke is the same thing. Like, K, I mean, Duke was a decent program before K got there, but he built them into, into what they are. And, like, he has a pretty big coaching tree now, but none of those guys are, are like, blowing the doors off at all. Uh, Capel obviously had the, the Blake Griffin run, but he, Capel's you know. probably the guy right now. Like, if yeah, he fell apart at Oklahoma after Griffin left. Right. Like, that's not a great sign. Rojo looks promising. Collins has done a nice job. These aren't, like, no one's, like, no one's even as, 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 probably locked in as Hopkins was. Obviously, they, they got their jobs earlier, but that's because Tay doesn't really have a, uh, a sign of, uh, of stepping down. But um, I'd be a little worried if I was a Duke grad. Now, they could probably go attract an awesome coach. Well, right, that's what I mean. But, like, they can just go hire Shaka Smart tomorrow. I don't think Syracuse can do that. Right, and they're definitely above. But like, I think you put Duke under, um, I think the, the, the schools I had ahead of them, I think Kentucky... Um, is just the the fan base is so diehard, and they've they've had you know four or five coaches like all do well there. Um, you just like it, it's almost the model's almost proven there. Where if you get a coach who's pretty good, he'll have success at Kentucky. Yeah. I think Kansas uh, is kind of similar. Obviously, they went from Williams to Self, but from Brown to Williams to Self, really. So uh, you know it's not too hard when you have three in a row like that. And then I put UNC just because it's it's. Um, you have to try really hard to to, to mess up that. That, that situation. You have, you have right. ravenous boosters. You have endless local support. 
So much, yeah, yeah. More, more so than Duke does, um, at least in terms of local support. And I'm sure Boosters, it's, it's you know, if it's not close, like, I'm sure UNC has a, a decent edge. They just have more alums, which, as Syracuse fans, we know is, like, a big thing. Like, you having having the public school alumni base would be very nice. Uh, not that we want to give up our private school status, but yep. it is a factor that Syracuse has working against it. Um, now, I would say, uh, yeah, I mean, Duke, the Duke opening, whenever that happens, and for, with Kay, it might not be for like 15 years because he's just, that literally doesn't age. Um, he's a vampire. It, he might be. <laughs> that Maybe that's not, I mean, does he even color his hair? Maybe that's just that's just his hair, man. Like, Props. who knows? It, it's looked the same for like 30 years. Um, so yeah, I, I think they're like, Duke obviously, it, it's Duke, and they're just so far ahead of, of most other programs that it, it's, it's, like, not a question, but, like, UCLA was so far ahead of every other program when Wooden left, and they have never found it again. So it's not, like, guaranteed that whoever they, they punch in there is going to kill it. Like, they might, and it might be, you know, hunky dory do forever, but, you know, UCLA uh, has, what, one title since, uh, since Wooden left, and that was uh, Herrick, which I forgot until I looked it up the other day. Uh, I don't think most people should even tell you, that, like, would even remember that. So... Um, it definitely isn't like guaranteed. Where I feel like there are some other programs that I feel way more confident are going to be able to fill that fill that role because it's already happened. They've had their transitions. Yeah, I, I, I buy that. I think that that's a that's a good point. That's a good point for us to to kind of uh, close on until halftime. And I did realize we did record a show after Brooklyn. So I just noticed. AC, that, I thought so, that was ACC tournament, and that seemed like too long ago. Yeah, that was, yeah, that, was that was a while ago. All right, so halftime. So everything you've drank in just the last two weeks, Dan. Yeah, it hasn't been that much. As I've, as, as John said earlier, I was sick, and I'm still kind of sick, so I haven't had a lot to drink recently. Um, looking back, the things I probably haven't covered, just not, it wasn't that long ago where I have three stuff from threes on here. Um, I don't remember if I said the Mexican cake from Westbrook, which we've had together before. Uh, just, I, found, I found that somewhere a couple weeks ago. Um, other half IPA from other half, always good. Uh, People Ale from Maine Brewing, which is uh, one of the better ones out there, um, which I had for like two weeks ago now. And then just some Deuce Island stuff. But uh, I, haven't really, I probably haven't had a beer in like two weeks, just I haven't felt well. So hopefully we'll be off of that uh, probably this weekend. I'll get back on the uh on the horse here understandable um i have a lot to recap because i was in syracuse and manhattan um in this last two week stretch um so i stopped over at the evergreen um in downtown syracuse had a new england ipa from middle ages uh that was pretty good also had a uh, lord hobo boom sauce um that was over at jay ryan's I also had a Weird and Gilly over at uh, J. Ryan's. Both of those were some pretty excellent IPAs. Um, stopped over at Flip Night on that Wednesday over at Fagan's. Uh, they tried something new at Flip Night that I was not happy about. They were basically charging regular price for all the beers, and then if you got it right, you still had to pay a dollar. Which was just, like, not the spirit of Flip Night. So by trying something new, you meant they ruined Flip Night? Yeah, they, they, That's yeah, what that they, they ruined Flip Night, and, and, and if there were any students out, they would have driven them all to Chuck's, but oh wait, there were no students out, because dear Syracuse undergrads, you are shameful. I, the fact that my wife and I, at 29 years old, were out longer than just about all of you, and sat in a mostly empty Fagans and a mostly empty Chuck's on a Wednesday night, 50 days before graduation, is just a travesty. Um... I don't know what's wrong with you kids. <laughs> I saw more people in the library. That's what you're doing. No. This, the, they were there. Yeah, they were there. There were more kids in the library than, than I'd ever seen there, ever. Like, my entire time I was at Syracuse. And it was like, I walked past the library at 9 o'clock at night on a Wednesday. When I was there, Flip Night was, like, you know, obviously undergrads don't go to Fagans in the same numbers as they go to Chuck's. But Flip Night was always packed. Like, yeah. you, you, you sitting room only. And then after Flip Night, after like 1 a.m., everyone went to Chuck's, and Chuck's was always packed on Wednesday nights, so I don't get that at all. I, I was very confused, but uh, had some decent beers at um, Fagan's. I had an Andromeda IPA from Galaxy Brewing that was 
pretty decent. Um, and then by the time I got to Chuck's, I only wanted like one beer just to just to reminisce. I had a uh, Yingling, um, and then looked for where I signed several pieces of the wall. Couldn't find them, and then we ended up heading out. There's a really good Calzones place on Marshall Street now, so I noticed. So that was uh, that was worth a stop. Um, so other things I had once I got down to New York, had a uh, Three's Touchy Subject IPA. So had a uh, Kent Falls, uh, some Zep on the jukebox. Went over to the uh, Proletariat, which uh, which you'll probably remember, Dan, from the time we had Mexican cake. I have been there since. Yes, they have a lot of very interesting beers. They do. Also had uh, from, also from Kent Falls. I had uh, this isn't even my final form. It was a bread IPA. Had a uh, Shirley May from Hill Farmstead. It was a stout. From Hudson Valley Brewing, I had a, a sour IPA in Candenza that I would highly recommend if it's still on drafts in places around town. And I had an Edward Pale Ale from Hill Farmstead. And let's see what else. I just grabbed a high lie over at, at a random bar from Cigar City. Um, finally had a, a Seeking Panacea. I stopped over at Cooper's Craft um, in Midtown. The uh, McKellar and Three's, uh, you know, joint effort. Also had a, a carton hop pun um, pale ale. Then once I got back home, had a uh, monkish juto. Was in uh, apricot uh, barrel aged saison. Had a, a rue de Floyd. It was a collaboration with uh, Three Floyds and the brewery. Uh, it was kind of like a cherry and coffee like sour stout that was interesting Um, and then I went to Smog City over the weekend they had a uh, bourbon coffee porter and a coconut bourbon coffee porter Uh, both of them were under 10% which was appreciated given how bourbon barrel aging usually gets pretty aggressive Um, and then other than that had one of my standbys uh, Beachwood Amalgamator and uh, Allagash Hoppy Table Beer both of which I would always recommend to anyone Pretty good books. Yeah. You had 10 falls there a couple times. I've not been up there because that's all the way up in Connecticut, but I do want to get up there because they have good beer. Yeah, they had some great... I probably had like three or four of their beers uh, while I was in New York, and they were all pretty good. So, uh, yeah. I'll have more to share next week because I'm going down to uh, this taco beer and like Mexican wrestling festival. That's a thing. Yeah, that's a thing. So it's going to be fun. There's also like going to be a lot of like... Should be terrible, but like were once good bands there. So like it's gonna be like exactly what you would think it would be. So uh, like so oh, we, we, we're like uh, forty one and like Lit are gonna be there. <laughs> Does Lit play anything besides My Own Worst Enemy? Do I they just play that like seven times? I think that's the only song they know how to play. <laughs> they probably have twenty eight minute like jam version. That's fine. Yeah, I mean that's what I want to see. I want to see I want to see tacos. I want to see Lucha Libre, and, and I want to see. Just my own worst enemy on loop for 35 minutes. <laughs> That's like the most Southern California thing that you could possibly ask for. <laughs> it's, totally it's like fine. every bad like San Diego bro stereotype. Exactly. That's, 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 that's the only reason I'm doing it, actually. <laughs> but, um, uh, Dan, do we shift to football? Or do we think there's things to talk about with Tyler Lydon? Uh, we need to talk about Tyler Lydon since he kind of made it, like, officially official today. Yeah, that was, I thought Tyler Lydon was, like, playing it cool and, like, not signing with an agent until he, uh, you know, got, like, a little bit more assessment on his draft stock, which seems to be falling a little bit. Um, and then he's doing the autograph signing thing, so that's pretty much over. Um. Well, he's doing it for free, which. I don't think so. I don't know if the price point was outlined. Um, and he actually probably still couldn't do that because then if someone went and sold them, even if he didn't get paid for them, he would still get in trouble. Right. Because the NCAA is fun. Um, <laughs> and you have effective, and you have complete control over everything other people do. Yes. Shout out to Todd Gurley. Um, yeah, I mean, at some point, like, I can imagine if you're going to go through the draft process, even with, like, the new rules, which I think are great, um, at some point, I feel like for some people, they just envision themselves going to the NBA, and they're like, you know what, I'm just done with classes, we'll just let the die roll, and that could be where Biden is right now. 
Yeah, I uh, I think he's going to end up in the first round because I think he's the type of tweener that like doesn't really come along very often, and he'd be like at worst. And I wouldn't say at worst. I'd say his ceiling, unfortunately, might be like a poor man's Gordon Hayward. I mean, very poor man. You can't really handle the ball like that. But I mean, he has a use in the NBA. He's just he's a stretch four, which is what the NBA is now. Like he can block shots, which he adds a little a lot because you know you could potentially have him in some small ball lineups where he can protect the rim a little bit. Um, if I mean, if he's in a, if he can shoot like forty percent of the NBA. Or like even like 37, 38%, he'll find a role. From three, I mean. Yeah, I, I, I buy that. I think I think already people are starting to just kind of project, and that goes for people inside and outside the Syracuse community. People are just starting to project, um, you know, whether it's the career arc of Wes Johnson or the career arc of Dante Green, which I think is stupid because they're not even close to the similar players. Um People are starting to tie in just those thoughts around those guys, uh, you know, and you can even pull in C.J. Fair, Chris Joseph, all them. Like, I don't think that's necessarily fair. Um, I, I think Leiden is a is a special player. He was a special player for us, and I think he was just one who wasn't he wasn't aggressive enough on the inside when he had clear size advantages or speed advantages on players. Um, and he's someone who could have dominated the college game, but didn't. It doesn't mean he couldn't play really well. Like, I don't see him as an all star which I guess would be, like, my first kind of bar for, like, would I draft someone in the first round? And I think in the NBA, you know, you look at a league that you can talk free agency all you want, but almost every team is a homegrown is full of homegrown talent um, at the top. Uh, and then that includes, like, you know, teams like the Cavaliers, who LeBron is a homegrown talent, like it or not, and a lot of the other, you know, kind of younger contributors are as well. The Warriors are almost entirely homegrown. Um, so I, I think you still have to be looking at the bar of, you know, is this is this player when I draft him in the NBA draft is he going to be a first is he going to be a potential All Star and if he's not, you should probably trade the pick, um, in, in my opinion, to a team that, that thinks that they have a future All Star on their hands. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know if and that's not a that's not knocking Leiden. I just don't know if he is an All Star type player unless he bulks up and potentially. Um, gets a little more aggressive around the rim. Um, if he can do that, you know, then, then he's the type of guy that, that, you know, maybe can average 13 and 10, 14 and 10 as, as a really, really good sixth man and maybe becomes, you know, kind of a McDermott type with, with less of an outside shot. Um, I, again, this is just throwing more and more comparisons for people to, to kind of, you know, lob onto him. But at the same time, it's just to point out that, like, there isn't just one path to the NBA. There's a lot of different ways you can go. I wouldn't suggest the second round path, but if you tie Leiden at some point, you just have to kind of you know roll the dice on yourself. And he's not he's not a player who who's going to wash out. You know, just months after leaving campus, this isn't. He's too talented for that, and, and there's too much upside to his game for for an NBA team not to take a flyer on him. Yeah, and, and you you have to like realize that if he comes back for next year, like, I think we all like to think he would have turned into, like, a more aggressive player and he would have upped his numbers to, like, 18 and 10 or something. And that's very possible. But <coughs> I think he was kind of old. Sorry, I'm, like, dying over here. Um, I think he was already a pretty old for his class. He did go to prep school. So he was already kind of behind where, like, the 18-year-old freshmen are in terms of their uh, draft potential to begin with. Um he probably would have been better better served going last year if he was in a this year. Um, but, like, there's no guarantee that, like, a 21-year-old junior Tyler Lydon would even have the same draft stock as a 20-year-old sophomore Tyler Lydon, even with a big stat bump, because the actual, like, attributes that he has, like, teams know what he is. Now, maybe they think now they can unlock, you know, some aggressiveness or, or some extra playmaking ability or something, but, like, they know what kind of player he is. And I don't know that you know, another year of slightly increased production would have done a whole lot for him when you take away a year of, of his, you know, potential. Exactly. And, like, that, that's what people who people who have a lot of criticisms about those who declare for the draft don't really understand how the NBA draft works, and that's not, like, an insult to those people. It's just pointing out, like, the NBA draft, more than any other draft, is completely and utterly about potential. Any draft is, obviously, but 
for the NBA, the numbers do not matter. You look at Chris McCullough was a first-round pick. Like, there's lots of other guys who, you know, might, you know, knock around a bunch of scrubs for a year or two in, in, uh, over in Europe, and, and, and they're drafted completely on spec. Um, the NBA does this more than anyone because they have – there's a lot more draft picks and there's a lot less churn than there are roster spots. So the NBA has the ability to really kind of make those gambles more than most other leagues. Um, for the NFL, it, it's, everyone has a very limited shelf life, and it's a lot of churn and burn. But for the NBA, it, it's really just, all right, well, every year we're going you know, to draft two guys. We're going to sign a bunch of unrestricted free agents after that. Um, we're going to play some summer league ball, and we're going to see who makes the roster. Um, so I, I, I just think people need to keep that in mind that, like, like, like you just said, if he averaged 18 and 10 next year, it, it really would not matter. Like, there's very few players who, who gradually improve their stock. I think Rocking Christmas would be the easiest example for a lot of SU fans to remember as a guy who, who really kind of came out of nowhere in some people's eyes. But at the same time, like, Christmas was getting some looks um, just because of, of his potential and his size and his athletic ability you know, even after his sophomore year, and a lot of us were saying in the articles about that going, like, laughing and going, like, what do they see in this guy? And it ends up they saw his potential, and, you know, Christmas unlocked his potential in college, and that led to him getting drafted, probably. But if he left early, I mean, who knows? Maybe with the right coach and the right D-League team or whatever, he, he could have unlocked it as a pro and been able to get into a starting lineup or at least in a reserve role at the NBA level earlier than he did. Right, and, and even looking at you brought up West Johnson before, obviously it's a different scenario if he was a, a third overall pick. But, you know, most of us wouldn't argue that West had, had this, like, fantastic NBA career. Um, West, without ever averaging double-digit points, uh, has made over $15 million, um, is on the, uh, in line to make another $18 million over the next three years. And that's with the salaries, like, especially even before, I think the salaries, like, explode. Uh I think he signed his most recent contract. I saw this uh, this past offseason. So, um, you know, a player like Wes Johnson, who uh, is a very like the role playeriest role player you could have in the NBA, is going to make about six million a year in the next three years. So, um, there's money to be had, even if you are not a superstar. And if you can cash in a year early, even if it's, you know you're maybe sacrificing the chance to go a little higher in the draft, and that's far from a guarantee, um, it's worth it for a lot of guys. So. Uh, we, we, I feel like we have this exact conversation every year because there's always one guy who leaves that people think shouldn't. But and, and if he had stayed, like I would have been thrilled, and I would have, you know, you could argue the other side as well. But ultimately, it's their decision. And as fans, like you're always, I think we're always better off served uh, trying to be, you know, make the best of it and be supportive because no one wants to be the fan base that isn't supportive. It doesn't help. Completely agree. Um... Because before we go, a little bit of football talk. Um, spring games coming up in a couple weeks. Um, injuries have definitely been a thing um, in spring practice. I think a lot of them kind of lingering from last year or some off-season surgeries. Um, today, I focused in on the uh, the defensive backs. Dan, do you think that they kind of hold the key for Syracuse football um, and, and kind of how far they can go this year? Is is if that depth can actually show up, not get injured, and keep maybe some fresh bodies on the field, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously the DPs were an issue last year, but I do think there's some potential there. Um, I think we've had a couple guys, like, within a group of, that struggled overall, um, look pretty uh, pretty competent at times. Um, I know we all love Antoine Cordy. Uh, we have, you know, guys like Stu Bradshaw and Juwan Dowells and Chris Frederick, who had some some moments last year. Winter and um, Ellison played really well, especially Ellison yeah, they, for several weeks. Yeah, David Ellison is like he. I mean, another one of those guys who is undersized, but like really uh, came up big in a couple games. I think he was key, and he had a huge game in that Virginia Tech game, right? The, yeah, and he might not even start this year now. Right. So there's not like I don't know. I'm not going to pretend like this secondary is going to flip the switch and become like a team's strength, but. I think they could sneakily be more competent. And I think this is going to be, the way Syracuse plays, like they're always going to probably give up a lot of yards just because there's always going to be a lot of offensive possessions and, and whatnot, and, and they're going to probably be on the field a lot based on you know the offense storing quickly or, or going three and out quickly. But um, 
it wouldn't shock me if, if, if they got more into the range of respectability this year. And, you know, we're, we're, if we're playing with, like, a top... If we're playing with, like, the 70th best defense, like, that's going to be good enough to win a lot of games. And a lot of that's going to be on the secondary because of how much pressure uh, this defense will put on them. Um, but uh, I, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about this group. I think we saw enough individually from some of these guys last year to be uh, a little excited about it. And, you know, hopefully if we, we gain some depth up front and get a little more of a pass rush, um, it can, you know, spell good things for this for this group. But, uh, like, individually, like, a couple of those guys that we outlined had sneakily decent uh, seasons last year. So yeah. excited to see them progress. Yeah, I mean, and on top of that, you know, you've got, you've got a couple grad transfers coming in. Uh, you know, Devin Butler is a guy who... You know, couldn't really stay on the field consistently at Notre Dame, but is probably going to contend for a starting corner job. Jordan Martin, uh, transfer from Toledo, same deal. Um, you know, guys who battled some injuries, but but could really pay uh, big dividends for Syracuse while we, you know, let some of our other, um, you know, depth kind of develop. I think no matter what, starting or not, you're going to see probably a rotation of of four to six um, corners and, and, and at least four safeties. Um, for this team, I think it's just, you know, kind of like, you know, nickel is kind of a base package at this point. So you're going to see a lot of different looks uh, with a lot of different, um, you know, guys kind of slotting in at, at the four to five different uh, defensive back spots. Obviously, I think the linebackers with a year under their belts can play better in coverage. Um, you know, you brought up the 70th best defense potentially as like a high, high ceiling. I, I would think, to be honest, if this team can put out an 85th ranked team in total defense and like don't even look at the yardage necessarily like you can find the differences in the margins you can look at the the yards per pass i know like last year we were like one of the bottom three to five schools in terms of like yards allowed um per pass it was like something atrocious like seven and i think it was over eight yards per per pass um so like if you even see that go down by a full yard like that could be the difference between you know four wins and six wins especially against you know the the type of difficult schedule we have so i think again like these guys played in the system last year i I think a lot of them have a much better understanding of their role um i think you know again i said this in the article you know having cordy back having dallas back having these transfers come in in a lot of ways it's like having you know four or five transfers um come in because we spent so much of last season really with a uh, kind of bare bones unit back there. Yeah. And, and Butler should be the linchpin. Like he has a lot of ability. He was a, I believe a four star recruit going yeah. into Notre Dame. He had pretty high expectations there. Obviously he had some off the field things, uh, which there was a lot of like conflicting reports over what happened. There was an incident at a bar. Um, but uh, I mean, it, it might not be the worst thing that he has a change of scenery. But he sounded like a guy where his teammates liked him and it just, you know, didn't work out there for, for one reason or another. But I know for a time before the injuries that cost him his last year there, um, I mean, they were looking at him as like a top two or three quarterback for them. So um, if he's all, I mean, he's had like a year off of football. Um, if he comes in and, and can play, you know, at even close to the, you know, ceiling that he has personally, I mean, that's a pretty decent quarterback one. Um, and then you pair it with some of these other, these other guys, and and it's it's uh, it's an interesting group. I, I'm I'm not going to go out there and say like they're going to make this huge turnaround, but I think, like you said, if they can cut cut that the crazy numbers from last year, like down a yard, and you you crawl into the 80s and 70s, like with the offense we have, like imagine if Texas Tech had had the 70th best defense, not the 120th. Like that's a team that would win a lot of games. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Syracuse's offense isn't rolling to the to the level that Texas Tech's is. But there's no reason our defense has to be that bad. So, and it wasn't that bad last year, even. So, uh, it was just normally really bad, not like Texas Tech level really bad. So, um, the last game, there's right? definitely uh, some some reason for optimism here. Um, and and this is going to be one of those things where Syracuse fans just have to accept that like they're not going to. This is never going to be a defensive unit that like pitches shutouts. Like it's just not the way this program's going to be built. So, if you give up you know 28 points, but you're scoring you know 35. Five to forty every game, like you're happy with that because it, it's all relative. No, completely, and I think that that's the you know we always talk about perception versus reality. I think that's something that a lot of fans are going to have to kind of rectify in their minds, like that this team defensively could play really well and still give up twenty, you know, twenty four to thirty points. 
um, very easily just because of you know how many opportunities opposing offenses are going to have. Obviously, uh, where where the scales get tipped is did those opportunities come after a two minute break or did those opportunities come after you know a, a six minute worth of game time break? Um, obviously, like that's a lot very much dependent on on Syracuse's offense and, and how successful that is. Um, while I think that they might take a step back in some ways not having Ahmed Atawa, I think that there are, are plenty of players, um, and Dino Baber said, uh, I think last week, was talking about that he's just really excited about the depth um, of this group receiver-wise, even compared to last year. I, I think if that group can step up as a whole, um, you could end up seeing kind of a more balanced attack than what we saw last year that was heavily, heavily reliant um, on the production of, you know, Irvin Phillips, who's still here, um, and, and, and Edatawa, who, you know, just kind of exploited uh, and, and abused cornerbacks um, in one-on-one matchups down the field. Yeah, I, I read the, the Phillips piece on Syracuse.com yesterday, and I'm, I'm excited for him because, you know, last year we heading into the season, we were, I think, both pretty speculative about um, – how Phillips would transition over to uh, receiver, especially because, like, as running back a couple years ago, his his pass, he just didn't seem like a natural pass catcher. And even last year at times, it didn't seem like he had totally gotten it, and he still caught, like, 90 balls. So that's, you know, pretty good for a guy in a new position for the first time. So I'm really excited to see what he is. He looks like, you know, a full year into this. And uh, I'm still not, I'm still all in on my Steven Smile stock. Like, I don't see what... I don't. I don't imagine he's going to have a an Ahmed Hallow year. But there's no reason why he can't slide into that role and put up some big numbers. Like he, he has so much ability. He's uh, a veteran. He has you know as much uh, chemistry there, Dungey as anyone. Like I, I'm. I'm. I would not be shocked if he. You know, I don't expect him to the 1,400 yards, but I wouldn't be shocked if he has an All ACC. You know, somewhere in those those top three team caliber seasons. Yeah, I buy that. I, I think you're going to see. I think you're going to see Phillips be able to rack up more yards, even if the complete, even if the receptions play, uh, stay pretty static. I think you're going to see, you know, Ishmael's numbers obviously go up uh, from last year's. Now that he'll be the the primary option on the outside, um, I think the key for for him, to be honest, will be, you know, if the other outside receiver options can stay healthy. You know, whether that's Jamal Custis or Adley Anoisi, Devin Butler, you're going to need those guys to be able to pull their own weight, even if it's just as a decoy. Um, to get, you know, whether it's it's triple coverage, double coverage off of um, Ishmael because he, you know what, he's he's not as big as as uh, Ahmed Atawo. He doesn't have the same hands necessarily. Um, I think Ishmael's a great route runner. Um, I think he's he, the team's best route runner by a mile, and he was last year too, to be honest. But um, I, I think he's going to need somebody or, or somebody's to, to be able to uh, you know, really get defenses off him down the field or else uh, this team's going to have to dink and dunk their way down the field again. Yeah, and that's where the, the complimentary players are pretty interesting because you have the big guys like Anoisi and Custis who I feel like have been on this team for like six years now. We just are waiting for one of them to break through and find that role. And we have all the offices that are going to that every year. So like, hopefully that happens this year. And then you have an Ali Butler, the other, the other Devin Butler, who is a burner? Who is a track star? Who can take maybe take the top off the defense? Um, you know, with this. Uh, so I think we have like some interesting complementary pieces, and uh, it's just a matter of one of them like finding that third role where you know last year it ended up being Ishmael who was like the third guy, which was unexpected considering you know he came with pedigree and we didn't know what Irv was going to be, and we obviously didn't know what Edatow was going to be. I feel pretty good about those top two. So we having a third guy in this offense where there's so many passes thrown and there's, there's going to be a third or fourth guy open on you know a ton of plays. Like uh, I'm, I'm super intrigued by the group we have, um, and I even think Butler last year had some flashes before his injury. So uh, I think he's the guy who I'm, I'm most uh, I would probably bet on. But uh, I like that we have like this range of people. Agreed, agreed. Uh, I think that's a good place to stop here. Um, I think we'll have plenty more to talk about football-wise uh, next week. It'll kind of serve as a... Uh, will it be... No, it won't be a, a preview for the spring game yet, but I think we'll have plenty more to talk about with football still because, as most listeners know by now, you know, Dan and I could kind of talk about the football team for hours on end if we were asked to. 
Yes, and hopefully I will not have a intermittent coffee fit that you, most of you guys luckily didn't hear most of because I'm <laughs> getting pretty good with you. But I apologize on the tumble that tap through. All good, all good. Uh, Dan, thanks as always for joining. Much obliged. Yes, uh, hopefully the Mets don't pull out this second game of the year when we're in the 12th inning with the Braves because, of course, we are. Hooray, baseball. Uh, that was Dan. I'm John. Before things change, before they change. change. But it sounds like Mets baseball to me. Anyway, uh, that was Dan. I'm John. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Try New and Snapsalute Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on Blog Talk, on whatever other service you may listen to us on, and go Orange. Go Orange. What's the Mets? Huge savings on new and previously leased furnishings. That's right, huge savings. At Court Furniture Clearance Center, choose from our wide variety of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home or office. You'll find sofas from $199.99 and more. Everything in our 9,000-square-foot showroom is Court-certified, guaranteed, and in stock, ready for delivery or to take home today. Visit our Chantilly Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Mention Radio 20 and get 20% off. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.